Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly marriage hour today on Trending. You know, I really understand why St. Paul discouraged people from getting married. I'm going to talk about that a little later on. It's our weekly marriage hour, and it's not for the married only. It's not for the seasoned. It's not for the unseasoned newer marriages either. It's even for single people who are desiring that vocation of marriage or want to learn a little more about it. I'm actually going to talk about gentlemen, when you should know whether or not you should marry someone. And ladies, there's a lot we can take from the conversation of who we should be looking for to marry as well. But are you considering marriage? Are you not considering marriage? We'll talk about who you should marry here on Trending in just a little bit. I'm going to be joined in just a moment by Father Philip Ochansky as well from Courage International. I'll share with that you a little bit more about that. It's a ministry helping people with same-sex attraction. Before we do, my two-year-old, my toddler. Okay, sanctifying moments with a two-year-old, just the defiance. It goes from five, ten fantastic days with her, and then all of a sudden, everything is she thinks it's okay to say no over and over again to me today. No. And then she's laughing about it, and I am trying to stay very calm as she says no, as I tell her, don't tell me no. And she says it over and over again. Uh, The end of the day yesterday ended with me saying, okay, every time you were a bad girl tomorrow, if you cry, if you whine, you will be spanked. Yes, I believe in spanking. Spanked and put in your room for timeout. And I told her last night, this morning I told her, and she's been doing better. She's trying really, really hard. Uh, It didn't come to a timeout time until it was nap time. And at that point, I thought, okay, it's punishment enough that I'm just tossing you in your room to go to your nap and cry yourself to nap. Yes, I'm letting her cry herself to nap. You know, there are a lot of things. You know, I think a lot of people cringe when they talk about the discipline of their children because there's so much judgment on that topic. But I'm just being frank with where it's at. And sometimes you do the best you can. And yesterday was one of those days I really did struggle with patience. Uh, so we'll actually touch on why St. Paul says maybe you shouldn't get married. We'll talk about that in a little bit here on Trending. I'm joined today. I've been at the Catholic Psychological Association, actually the Catholic Psychotherapy Association conference over this last week. And wow, it has been incredible. The Catholic Psychotherapy Association actually coordinated this year's conference specifically on the topic of LGBTQ issues in the therapy room. And as faithful Catholics, how do we see this being addressed by our therapists? The presentations were phenomenal. I'm so grateful for our Catholic therapists. I highly recommend Catholic therapy. It's not the same as regular therapy because you don't have the faith-filled perspective that respects and honors the faith-filled traditions of our faith, which is truly the blueprint for the human person. So if you're looking for a Catholic therapist, I always recommend catholictherapist.com. But you can actually go to catholicpsychotherapy.org as well, and they have a full list of psychotherapists there as well. So while I've been enjoying this conference, The first day of the conference was actually a retreat for therapists, and it was put on by Father Philip Bochansky. He's the executive director of 
Courage International, which also has a subgroup called Encourage. Now, Courage International is a group for Catholics who experience same-sex attraction and want to live in accordance with their Catholic faith. They're answering that universal call the chastity that all of us are called to encourage and invites and encourages people who experience same-sex attraction to live out their vocation to the fullest, even in the face of challenges. Because we do not believe that a person is born gay. In fact, the data, the science, the psychology has actually disproven this idea of born gay. And that would also go fundamentally against what the church teaches in that we know that a person has a free will and an intellect, meaning we can come to know something, we can love it, we can embrace it, that is truth, ideally, and freely choose it, God willing, the truth, the good, and the beautiful. And so that's what Courage International does. It encourages and invites people to live the Catholic Church's teaching of chastity, abstinence, still honoring that marriage is between one man and one woman. And believe it or not, there's a massive network worldwide of men and women who experience same-sex attraction who do not want to live out those attractions who do not want to be quote-unquote married to someone of the same sex and believe in marriage between one man and one woman. And so to live that out in their day-to-day lives, Courage International is an incredible resource. You can learn more at CourageRC.org. That's CourageRC.org. And actually, there's a support group. So if you have a friend, a family member, a sibling whom you are very close to, and they are living out a same-sex lifestyle, or they're struggling with same-sex attraction, you can actually get involved with a group, a support group near you as well called Encourage. And that group will help you in navigating how to walk through those relationships and friendships with someone who experiences same-sex attraction or might even be living out that type of lifestyle, but doing it with love and charity and respect and honor from a Catholic perspective. So check them out at CourageRC.org. Again, joining me now is the Executive Director of Courage Now, Father Philip Bochansky, and we're going to talk about the universal call to holiness as well as as responding to that claim, love is love. What do you say when someone says that? I've had that thrown at me many times, even by people uh, who have really believed for years the Catholic Church's teaching on same-sex attraction and marriage, yet the way of the world has really impacted them. So we'll talk about responding to, quote, love is love a little later on. But now I want to talk about the universal call to holiness. It's often, I think, in the current culture, um, we have confusion with regard to empathy and approval. And especially as Catholics, sometimes when people are living adverse lifestyles, what the church teaches and they're Catholic, um, we want to empathize with them, but we have a misplaced empathy and we tend to approve instead. And yeah, all of us are called to holiness and holiness within understanding what the Catholic church teaches calls us to conversion. And so I'd like to talk to you about that universal call to holiness that all of us have and how this is particularly important in our lives with those who may leave be living adverse lifestyles, whether it's the gender crisis, living together, you know, so many things that can go astray from what the church teaches. Yeah, so I think where we have to start with that, and and so the idea of this term, universal call to holiness, comes from uh, the Second Vatican Council uh, and its dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium. But it certainly didn't originate there. 
um, you know, goes back uh, even before the time of Christ to uh, to sacred scripture. Um, thinking of Leviticus chapter nineteen, be holy as I be, for I the Lord your God am holy. Right, and then lots of uh, specific instructions, and that's where we have the the second of the great commandments: um, love your neighbor as yourself. And each of those commandments are followed by a remark, uh, I am the Lord. So um, the whole idea of holiness uh, from an Old Testament perspective is uh, the Lord has chosen his people and he wants them to be holy as he is holy and uh, to show to people who God is and and what it means to live according to God's plan. Mm-hmm. And of course, that is, that is fulfilled in in the Lord Jesus and, you know, he, he takes the old law at the Sermon on the Mount and takes it a step further. So it's not enough just not to kill, but don't get angry. It's not enough just not to commit adultery, but don't lust. Um, and then of course at the, at the Last Supper, um, he gives a new commandment, uh, not just be holy as I, the Lord, am holy, but love one another as I love you. So, um, it really takes us back to, uh, the reality that to be holy means to live as God has created us to live. There's something that I remember growing up when I was struggling through high school. My mom had said to me about how I'm called to be holy. And she said to be holy means to be set apart. And I was, you know, in the midst of navigating difficult high school relationships. One of my closest friends from high school uh, went off and loved a party lifestyle. And suddenly after years of uh, kind of sleeping around, ended up being so confused by her sexual damage, started to identify as same-sex attracted. And, you know, I look at kind of what was happening before that when things were falling apart in high school, those relationships, and she kept saying to be holy means to be set apart. And it makes me think as you refer to Old Testament teaching, you know, it was understood, you know, in the harvest and all the food that would be gathered in, there's a portion of that that was meant to be set set apart and sacrificed to God. That was the portion set apart for God. And you mentioned the chosen people. Those That was this, the group of people chosen by God to be set apart and continuing to keep his commandment, his will. And so how do we, how do we maybe find ourselves in the midst of the culture being willing to find that moment where we're willing to set ourselves apart and follow that call to holiness because i think that's sometimes what's difficult everyone else is doing it love is love all of this seems normal why shouldn't i go with that same course of direction for my life so i think first of all it's 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 incumbent on each of us to live in our own lives um that call to holiness so that as the lord says we become light to the world we become salt in the earth um we're giving that good example and <clears throat> that that's always going to be a more effective way to get the message across than to be culture warriors, right? Mm. Um, I mean, yes, there are there are uh, things that we have to confront, um, but the, oftentimes it's not everybody's job to confront them. So uh, you know, and I think that that the enemy can uh, propose to us a lot of external enemies to get angry at. Um, to blame things on, to write letters about, to, um, you know, to just distract us from the, the basic duty that we have to be holy ourselves, to love the person in front of us fully, to speak the truth with love, as St. Paul would say. Um, and so, uh, the way that we help people to, uh, themselves take up this call to holiness is first of all, by example. 
And then by having good conversations. Um, Pope Francis uh, said way back in 2013, in life, God accompanies people, per individual persons, and we must accompany them, starting from their situation, and we must accompany them with mercy. So if we go into conversations with people who are, you know, are not following God's plan on a certain issue, and we go into that conversation, you know, armed with the catechism in one hand and the Ten Commandments in the other and say, look, this is what you need to know. You better shape up. When you get this figured out, then come back. Um, it's not going to work, right? The, the, the first question, I think, in any conversation uh, about the moral life is, tell me your story, right? To, to ask people really to reflect on and to share uh, what it is they're looking for and what's been going on in their lives. And if they're finding what they're looking for, where they're looking for it, um, because then we can propose a different way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we always need to be able to say three things to someone. I love you. I believe God has a plan for your life. And, and I would like to hear your story. And then when they can share their story with us and we take it seriously, then we have an opportunity to share the rest of the story, namely the plan for human flourishing that is God's will for us. You're presenting an approach that's very practical. Ask and listen, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that we fail to ask today and we fail to listen. We like to tell people what we think. And then if they oppose, we like to immediately come up with our arguments in an instance. And when we're talking about this universal call to holiness, this practical approach is necessary for us to first live it out and then to bring it to others by asking and listening. And I think so often, you know, we talk about what the church teaches and it sounds so strict and hard to some people, but that's not what it looks like in everyday relationships. It's one thing to know what the church teaches. It's another thing to live out what the church teaches and lovingly invite people into that. And I think even in my own experience, you know, having multiple family members in our extended family who have experienced and lived out same-sex relationships for years, decades, and this isn't something new that the culture is facing and live practically lived out. It's being there in those relationships and having expectations, but asking and listening at times. And that's challenging in enough as it just by itself, not even necessarily having to come in and say, this is what the church teaches. I and mean, there's a time for that at times, but mostly it's listening. And that call to holiness, how do we see that call to holiness? And we, how do we further invite other people into it? When you have someone who's living such an adverse lifestyle, let's say you've gone there, you're asking the questions, you're listening. You really do understand whether or not that person knows if you care, because it's important, right? That they know that you care. Sure. If you know that, what are those words that you would encourage someone to share to invite them into that call to holiness and that lifestyle in God? Well, I think part of the conversation can be very genuinely so, uh, and a request for the person to share more of what they're looking for and what they're, you know, what they're finding. Um, I mean, there, it's perfectly possible for a parent or, or a friend to say, you know, I'm trying to understand your perspective. I'm trying to understand what it is that you desire, what you're looking for. And it's just not my experience. So, um, you know, could you, would you feel comfortable sharing more about, uh, what you're experiencing? Mm -hmm. And, and then to ask good follow up questions about that. Um, and, and to not be afraid to share one's own story. Um, for example, if we're talking about, um, a same-sex relationship, uh, same-sex intimate relationship or marriage. Um, 
you know, for someone who is, uh, you know, married and, and uh, maybe has children of, of their own, um, you know, to say, the reason I'm asking is uh, because the complementarity between my wife and me or my husband and me, um, it just it just makes such a big uh, it makes up such a big part of our relationship and who we are and how we can give ourselves to each other. And it's also the reason that we have children who are um, the fruit of our uh, our sharing our love in an intimate way with each other. Um, you know, I, I just I can't imagine my life without that. Um, just to be you, clear, you're not just talking about sexual intimacy. You're talking about the complementarity of the whole person as female exactly. in contrast to the otherness of male. And I think that's where you know we lose each other because sometimes they're reducing that relationship sometimes too much to the sexual component. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And so um, to be able to say you know, co- the complementarity between my spouse and me and the fact that we can really give new life in, in such a literal way, um, that means so much to me. I just, I, I don't understand yet from your perspective what it's like to have a relationship where that's not part of it. Mm-hmm. And so would you mind talking more about that? And I think it, it, it's a way, it's a gentle way to get someone to think about things that, the reason that, that the church says that they're, they're, um, necessary is because, you know, complementarity, procreativity, permanence, exclusivity, you know, we see these things as essential elements of marriage, and it's got to have an effect on an individual and on a couple when those things are not present. And so it may be that the person that we're talking to has never kind of considered it from that angle mm-hmm. um, or hasn't had time to reflect or, or has avoided reflecting on, well, what happens in a relationship where those things aren't present. Mm-hmm. So they may not be able to have to answer you in that moment, um, but it may be that you, you start a, a thought process that mm-hmm. uh, eventually can lead to a, a change of heart and conversion. And I like how you're using these questions saying, I don't understand, I'm trying to understand. And that will, down the road, as they're processing through this question, lead to God because God is order. He gives the blueprint for our lives. And so for us to question that idea of order within life absolutely requires that we turn to God in that conversation. Father, thank you so much for joining me. I want to talk to you in just a moment about, I think, a very important phrase that we all need to be able to respond to, even if not one-on-one with someone, but maybe with a family member, a friend, maybe a sibling, a child. And that is, how do you respond to this idea of love is love? So I'll be right back here with Father Bochansky. listening to Trending with Timry, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. I'm at the Catholic Psych Association with Father Philip Ochansky. He's the Executive Director of Courage International, and we've been talking about everything surrounding the LGBTQ conversation and crisis, especially as psychotherapists, therapists are treating this today and working with people and where the Catholic Church comes into conversation here. Father, during the conference here, one of the questions asked yesterday was, how do you respond to that very common phrase, love is love? Well, I think, first of all, we have to remember that um, when the enemy has an agenda, it, he, he starts with 
language, right? And so, you know, the reason that 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 phrase seems so compelling is because we know from the Word of God that uh, sacred scripture says God is love, and I think the culture that we live in often, when they if they were even to say that, what they really mean is love is God, right? That as long as I feel really strongly, uh, then that makes everything right. And so this idea that love is love, um, it means, well, you know, if somebody has that loving feeling, that that strong feeling, well, you can't question it because Mm -hmm. all loves are the same. All relationships are the same. So where love is, that is where God is, essentially. Ideally, right? But I think the way that modern society uses that is, as long as you have a really strong feeling and the other person reciprocates, then that's the only uh, criteria for judging right or wrong. And um, that's just what that, I think where that comes from is uh, a real devaluation of what love is. You know, the culture that we're living in, uh, I think just assumes that every strong feeling must be a sexual feeling. And the only real relationships are sexual relationships. And so I think when the culture says love is love, what they mean is one form of sexual intimacy is just the same as another. And as long as people are consenting adults and feel really strongly, then nobody else should say anything about it. Um, well, the reality is that there's more than one kind of love. Mm-hmm. There are different, different forms of love, different ways of loving that are appropriate for different relationships. Um, so the, the love that the world is focusing on in this case, is a love that the Greek uh, philosophers and poets called eros. Uh, That's where we get the word erotic, which means sexually intimate. And eros is an important love. Pope Benedict said that God loves us with eros. And what he meant was um, that God wants to possess us fully and and he wants us to possess him fully, that he wants communion with us. And between human beings, eros wants to give a total gift and receive a total gift, wants to p- possess and be possessed by the beloved in a, in a healthy, holy way. Um, what that means, though, is that eros, erotic love, always is tending towards sexual union because uh, the totality of a human person is a union of body and soul. And so all those things that kind of are part of eros leading up to it, uh, flirtation, infatuation, relationship, uh, physical signs of affection. Um, those things uh, are really only appropriate when the object of Eros, uh, the beloved, can is one spouse or can be one spouse if, you're, if one, a person is pursuing the other towards marriage. Um, whenever the, the object of affection um, can't be one spouse, whether it's because they're of the same sex or because one or both uh, are married to someone else, or just because, you know, there's maybe, right, or because there there may be mutual attraction, but they're just not good for each other. Um, Well, then, to mess around with the beginnings of Eros is is very uh, unwise. And what really is necessary is to make a sacrifice of that particular kind of love, um, to offer that to God and and God's plan, and instead to pursue the other forms of love, namely um, affection, that kind of spontaneous love that we feel for People that we grow up with, especially our families, um, you know, school friends, people who are in need, little babies, and people like that. Um, charity, or the Greek word is agape, the divine love that God has for us, that he, he gives us his love so that we can love him in return. 
and we can love the people that he loves. Um, and friendship, which is a very overlooked and forgotten love. It's hard for, mm-hmm. I think it's especially hard for boys to make strong friendships if the world assumes that every strong relationship is a sexual relationship mm-hmm. and they're embarrassed or afraid of that, uh, of being thought of it like that. But friendship is not a second best love. It's not a consolation prize. Um, it's a very fierce and loyal kind of love based not on you know giving everything to one person, possessing the beloved, but sharing life, moving in the same direction. Friends are friends because of something that they have in common. And it doesn't have to be exclusive. It's actually better when it's not exclusive, but can be lived out in a circle of friends. So anyway, when, when we keep Eros in its proper place and only pursue Eros with someone who is or can be one's spouse, um, then that putting Eros in its context allows our, our uh, expressions and experience of affection and, and charity and friendship to be much more robust, much freer, much more real. So that a life without a spouse or a life without a sexual partner is far from a life without love. Mm-hmm. If we remember that there's more to love than sexual intimacy. And so what you're talking about, I think, is important, distinguishing the fact that when people say love is love, they're talking about the Greek word eros, which is that passionate dimension that it can really only be shared sexually, and that there's so much more to love. There's friendship, there's self-giving, there's sacrifice, you know, agape, charity is that love of God, that sacrificial love, mm-hmm. seeking nothing in return. And I think that's where the clincher is. I think when you look at, unfortunately, the same-sex relationships is that we know within the community, the same-sex community, that often there's a lot of infidelity and it's very reduced to um, sexual interactions. And so there's sometimes that lacking dimension of sexual complementarity, but people argue and say, no, there is sacrificial love there, though. And so how do you respond when they say, no, there is sacrificial love? There's more than arrows in those relationships. Well, I think maybe I would push back a little bit um, and to say that you know, ju- just like in any other part of our uh, striving to accompany and understand a person, we don't want to overgeneralize, right? Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, you know, um, in a same-sex um, relationship, um, there's no reason not to uh, presume and acknowledge that people are good people and loving people and that they do care for one another um, and that there is real affection there. Um, and the 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 caution that the church has is uh, not to encourage people to move towards a sexual relationship in that context. And the church does have to make good judgment and, and clear judgment about the morality of sexual intimacy in a relationship like that. Um, but we don't, I should, I don't think we should paint every person who experiences same sex attraction or even every person who identifies as gay or is in a same sex relationship with the same brush. Right. Um, and then when it comes to, your own loved ones, family members or friends, um, you know, I think we, first of all, if you have multiple siblings or multiple children and you're not striving to treat them all with the same uh, set of expectations, well, then that's not fair, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we should help all the people that we love to hear God's plan and to pursue the virtue of chastity according to their state in life. Um, But with loved ones who are experiencing same-sex attraction, I think we want to affirm everything that it's possible to affirm, right? I mean, typically, you know, because our loved ones are good people, they pick good people to be in relationship with, right? And I think, you know, sometimes what it comes down to is, 
look, if you were telling me this is your best friend and you, you know, you want to spend time together and even be housemates and just look after each other because you don't anticipate that either of you will be married. Um, you want to, to, you know, just, just be there for each other. If we're talking about a strong friendship, I'm all on board for that, right? This is a good person. I love you. I respect this person who obviously cares a lot about you. It's just that I, if you're asking me, I don't think that you're going to find the fulfillment that you're looking for in an intimate relationship with this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so affirm everything that's possible to affirm and then be clear about where the line is. And then when it comes to um, something that, that a loved one asks you to do, whether it's to say that you're on board with, with uh, their re- intimate relationship or come to a, a wedding or, or something like that, well, then, then you can make a distinction between the person whom you love and the, the thing that they're asking you to say or do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you say, listen, I'm, I'm not asking you. You obviously believe that what you're doing is right in your conscience. And I'm not asking you to change your, to go against your conscience so that I can love you. Um, and I'm just asking for the same respect that you not ask me to go against my conscience so that you can believe that I love you. Something you said really struck a chord with me. It made me think of a friend of mine who has fallen away from the Catholic faith, gotten into Hinduism, Buddhism, a lot of the yoga type of world. And she said to me that all of her friendships she has with close roommates, that she now discerns, you know, whether or not, you know, am I a lesbian? Am I attracted to this individual? And what I've come to see is that she's having a hard time distinguishing that when she has a very deep friendship with someone, she doesn't know what to do in terms of almost this mindset of next steps. Mm-hmm. And so her next step has been that she's starting to discern in each relationship whether or not there's sexual attraction. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm deciding each time, no, not with this person, not with this person, but I'm keeping myself open to that. And it's a confusing moment because it has to do with how to pursue a friendship. It does not have to do with sexuality. How would you encourage someone who's maybe finding themselves in that place of wrongly, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual friendships, where they're struggling to grow in that friendship, and for some reason they're thinking that might only be in a sexual way? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we kind of come full circle to where we started with our conversation, because um, you know, when the Lord, after the Lord gives his new commandment, love one another as I have loved you, then all throughout John 15, he's putting that love and that self-sacrifice and love in the context of friendship. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends because I've told you everything that I've heard from my father. You are my friends if you keep my commandments. And so um, I think a real um, benchmark for uh, whether we're discerning friendship correctly is if we can pray about our friendships. If we find that you know we're hesitant to, to take to prayer this person or our feelings about this person, uh, it's a good sign that, that we really ought to be talking to God about that and that it may be that somewhere in our conscience we know uh, this is what we're looking for is more than friendship and, and not appropriate in the circumstances. Um, and there's there's lots of um, good materials uh, and thinkers and, and writers on the subject these days because we need them to be there. Um, you know, we really have... Uh, as a culture, we're, we're hyper-connected through social media, but also hyper-isolated by the way that we live. Um, and so I'm thinking uh, particularly of Dr. John Cuddyback, uh, who's at Christendom College in Virginia, 
has written a great deal about the virtue of friendship and um, you know just what the essentials are and how necessary it is today. Um, more classically speaking, uh, St. Elred of Riveau writes, has a beautiful book called Spiritual Friendship, although a lot of people kind of co-opt him and say, well, obviously he's talking about uh, homosexual intimacy. Uh, that's reading the 21st century into the, that 12th century text. Um, and even, you know, St. Augustine, um, I think you could sum up uh, St. Augustine's confessions in one sentence. All the trouble I ever got into is because I wanted friends. Right? And so to, to read the confessions and, and kind of learn with St. Augustine, you know, the, the benefits and also the boundaries of friendship uh, could be very useful. Those are excellent sources. I'll be sure to link them in the episode notes for today's show. That's been Father Philip Bochansky from Courage International. Can you give us the website one more time for those who are needing support, if they have a family member experiencing same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, or for those who are Catholic and want to live by their Catholic beliefs and need a support network? Sure. And and if you don't mind, I'll, I'll also share uh, kind of a, a friendly uh, website to ours. Uh, that's the Person and Identity Project from the Catholic Women's Forum, that's personandidentity.com, which is the best resource uh, that I know of for the whole question of gender identity discordance and from many, many angles. Um, and then we have our resource website, truthandlove.com, for people in ministry, education, and the healing professions. And then our main website is couragerc.org. And uh, one of the parts of that that I'm most proud of is our Courage Witness blog called The Upper Room, uh, where people can read the experiences of courage and encourage members and chaplains uh, and just uh, hear from them directly uh, what they uh, have found uh, when they've made that effort to, to live according to, uh, to God's plan for our sexuality, our relationships, and our lives. All of those links will be in the episode notes for today's show, as well as on social media. Check out couragerc.org for the main website. That's Courage rc.org. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. If you miss the conversation and you want to know how to respond to that statement, love is love, Father Philip Bochansky from Courage International was just with me. We've been enjoying this conference, the Catholic Psychotherapy Association Conference. Check them out at catholicpsychotherapy.org. And Father Bochansky's incredible, incredible ministry to people who are Catholic and want to live out their Catholic faith, experiencing same-sex attraction, check out couragerc.org. Org. Okay, and by the way, if you want to listen to what we were saying, just subscribe to the podcast, relevantradio.com forward slash trending is the easiest way to grab that podcast or wherever you listen. Okay, so a couple years ago, I was reading the work of St. John Chrysostom, and he basically has a full homily, a treatise on how men can pick a wife. And I went, no, really? Because I think this is significant. Gentlemen, listen up. Ladies, listen, because you want a man who's going to do this. And gentlemen, this is what your calling is if you choose to marry. And it should guide who you choose or, in, or, or are interested in marrying. But before I talk about what St. John Chrysostom says, we have to go back to the words of Jesus Christ, which I think are enlightening. 
When we hear the conversation between the apostles and Jesus about the permanence of marriage, that, hey, divorce isn't uh, part of what the Catholic Church teaches. It hasn't been since the beginning of the human person intended by God. Marriage is permanent till death do us part. Are those vows we take uh, before the priest and before witnesses, before the altar, where the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ is there. But in Matthew chapter 15, we read about this discourse between Jesus and the apostles, specifically talking about marriage. And when they realize that marriage is really permanent, you can't get out of it, they basically have this response of, well, it isn't expedient to marry. Who would get married then? And Jesus acknowledges Marriage isn't for everyone. It's difficult. It's challenging. Now, take that alongside the words of St. Paul. And I was always struck by this, especially in college, when at the time I actually decided to start discerning religious vocation. And I was very, very serious about it. I felt called to academic life before that was something I'd fully pursue. And as you know my story, I'm married with children now. Uh, but the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians really stood out to me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're discerning a vocation, it's something to consider. St. Paul actually gives some advice for people who are married and unmarried. And he says right there, because we know that Holy Scripture, sacred scripture, the Bible is the inspired word of God. St. Paul himself says that I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And that has to do with those who are unmarried. So he's sharing his thoughts. If you aren't married, what he thinks you should do. And it's a little jaw-dropping. St. Paul discourages marriage. Why? For the sake of holiness. Uh, He even comments that just given the time, the present distress, he says, he encourages people to remain as they are, to remain single if they're not married. So if you're not bound to a wife, don't seek one. And if you are bound to a wife, do not seek to be free of the wife that you have. And I think that that's really enlightening because why? Marriage is difficult. And I think that St. Paul is, in a certain respect, in the formation of the apostles, kind of saying, hey, marriage is difficult, really difficult. And just ponder it for a moment with me, the reality of how difficult marriage indeed is. I think that the good, bad, and the ugly come out in us when we're married. Uh, The ugly can really come out and the best of us can come out. And I think that the fact that in Holy Scripture, We see that there's basically, in the presentation of what marriage is, there's this presentation, especially by St. Paul, uh, that the Holy Spirit is guiding what marriage is meant to be. In other words, who you should look for in a spouse. And I don't know how people do it without sacramental graces. First, the grace of matrimony. If you're married outside of the Catholic Church, get your marriage blessed. Bring it into the sacramental grace of the church. It's never too late. Talk to your priests. Make this happen. So we need the grace of the sacrament of matrimony, but we also need the grace of confession, reconciliation, because we really screw up in marriage. And we need the grace of the Eucharist, worthily receiving our Lord Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and being equipped with the body and blood of Christ to move us in the God-given role that God has allowed us to enter into in marriage. So let's come to this entire conversation with St. John Chrysostom, who is one of the early church fathers in the church. So within the first about 400 years of the church, this is where we see uh, what's known in the Catholic Church's tradition of the early church fathers. These are priests, bishops, who cardinals who were incredible 
incredibly, incredibly influential in explaining the church's teaching and helping in the development of really writing down what the Catholic Church uh, taught and believed based on uh, the witness of the apostles and the life of Jesus Christ. So how do you choose a wife with the insights of St. John Chrysostom? Well, it's really fascinating because it all comes down to this. Who are you willing to die for? I legitimately mean that. Who are you willing to die for? Gentlemen, if you're trying to pick a wife, you need to pick someone who you're literally willing to die for. You may be called to actually give your life and die for them. Or you may be called, or of course are called if you marry them, to live a constant death of self sacrificing your own desires, your own wants, your own weaknesses and failures, sometimes, you know, even your own sleep, your own hobbies, even the fitness of your body or the lack of fitness, overcoming the lack of a fit body so that you can better serve your family, so you can better be agile and capable of doing things to protect your family. So where does this whole idea come from? Well, men, are you prepared to die for the person you're going to marry? If you aren't, you should end it now. Even if you're engaged, end it now. You've got to fi- figure things out or maybe put a pause and wait. So Ephesians chapter 5, the letter to the Ephesians by St. Paul. St. Paul presents this very, very challenging statement when he talks about marriage and he talks about the role of men and women. He says to the men, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did he do? He laid down his life for his bride, the church. Now, it's interesting because then it also goes on. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So I think you have two perspectives here. You have the divine perspective that what did Christ do for his bride? Because we know the church, you and I, all of us are considered his bride who he sacrificed for so that we could enter into heaven. It gives you a mission for marriage. And marriage is in part your role is to help get your spouse to heaven because this is what Christ did for you and I. So the divine perspective is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Imitate Christ. Die for your bride. But I think on the human dimension, there's guidance from St. Paul. Husbands, he says, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, meaning that you wouldn't do anything to your spouse's body that you wouldn't want done to yours. And that's not just talking about the physical dimension of how we interact one with another, but how we speak to one another, how we validate or invalidate another person's emotions. So the core of this whole understanding of marriage is a little bit of a shocking idea, and that is death, death to self death of our own desires, our own weaknesses, even the sacrifice of our own sleep and hobbies and body. You know, I I know a thing or two about that with sleep. You know, there's a death to self in caring together for, you know, for example, a newborn, an infant that requires additional attention uh, through the night. The mission that men are called to in marriage is to sanctify the bride as Christ did the church. That's why we read in Ephesians chapter 5. If you've never read it and you want to know how to fix your marriage, you want to know who you should marry, read St. Paul's comments on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, basically, Christ's mission in sanctifying the bride and what he did for the church was done that he, that is Christ, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water. So what did Jesus Christ do? He sanctified his bride He cleansed her by the washing of water. We're talking about baptismal grace. We're talking about the bloody sacrifice of Christ that purified the bride. 
So now what St. John Chrysostom says is God did not abhor the church's ugliness, our ugliness. But St. John Chrysostom says, but changed her repulsiveness, reshaped her and reformed her and remitted her sin. Why is this significant? And some people might say this is, you know, kind of startling language. What St. John Chrysostom is saying is that when we read St. Paul discussing that Jesus Christ sanctified the church, he sanctifies you and I to make us able to enter into heaven. He washed us, he cleansed us, that this too is the role of men in marriage. That Jesus Christ abhorred the ugliness of sin that defiled and impacted the way that the human person interacted. Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, changed the repulsiveness of you and I and transformed it, reshaped it, as St. John Chrysostom says, and reformed it and remitted, got rid of our sins. And this is the role of the husband. How? By loving your wife to the point of the sacrificial death of Christ to sanctify her, to purify her. There's a really beautiful understanding in the formation of the Catholic Church and what we've known for years. And that is that when a husband lives his vocation sacrificially, when he rises to the occasion to be a leader, a protector, and a provider in that primary role within the marriage, that there's a complementarity that occurs between husband and wife. This is written before by Pope Pius XI and Cassie Canubi, this has always been the history of us understanding the church. Yet in a 21st century world mindset, it's not what we like to talk about. It's a lofty call and a challenge for men to live out. St. John Chrysostom says, if you marry a surly woman, you must reform her with gentleness, kindness, as Christ did the church. If you marry a surly woman. So in other words, you know, who you marry, you have. That's who you've married. And you, it's not that you're sitting here going, I need to change you. No, you need to sanctify as Christ did. Make holy, set her apart, the portion for the Lord. And you do that by, as St. John Chrysostom says, gentleness and kindness as Christ did for the church. So some insights here. Search for a spouse not who is perfect, but who is good. I think sometimes we have this idea of perfection. Physically is going to look like this. Uh, financially will look like that. You know, all of these things, this package, eye color, you know, height, that perfect package in your eyes. No, look for someone who is good, who will enter into the mission of marriage with you to be mutually submissive, as St. Paul says, and then there's a higher order within the marriage because everything is a very structured within marriage of the submission of the wife to the husband. But that submission of the wife to the husband would be natural and should be natural if the husband is sacrificing to the point of offering his own life, sacrificing his own desires and weaknesses for his wife. It's interesting because that means that when we enter into marriage that it's good and okay to know your spouse's faults, but to love your spouse in spite of them. That's the unconditional love of Christ. Love who your spouse is, not what your spouse is. We tend to reduce a spouse to the compilation of body parts, to what they can do for us. Not that those things aren't good, the gift of intimacy, the gift of the body, the beauty of the body, the gift of sacrificial love of your spouse serving you, but love your spouse even when they fail to serve you. I think that's what's so fundamental here. Marriage, as we know, is meant to be permanent till death do us part. And we're called to be faithful within marriage, even when it's hard. 
And that's why St. John Chrysostom gives these warnings about who you should look for in a wife. And again, ladies, listen, this is what men should be willing to do for you. And you shouldn't settle for less. There's a warning in terms of who to choose for a spouse. St. John Chrysostom says, if you take a bad wife, you must endure the annoyance. (laughs) It's really funny. I know people are going to get mad at me for this. St. John Chrysostom said, I'm just repeating what he said. He said, if you take a bad wife, you must endure the annoyance. So in other words, there is legitimacy to salvific suffering in marriage. Pope St. John Paul II actually wrote about uh, marriage quite a bit. I remember in graduate school, when I was working on my master's, I really went through a lot of the biblical text and wrote this paper on marriage as redemptive suffering and how marriage truly is an opportunity for redemptive suffering, that we will suffer in marriage and we need to embrace that. Engaging in a joyful suffering over this attitude of, I'm just going to embrace the suck, embrace the difficulty as simply miserable. Almost having this life of, this is my miserable life, this is my cross, but this is what God dealt me, and so I'm just going to embrace it. You need to go further than just embracing the suck. You need to enter into the joy of suffering, the joy of the sacrifice, the sacrifice of you for the other, the sacrifice of all you dislike in your spouse for your spouse, and it will bring about the sanctification of yourself and your spouse through the grace of Jesus Christ. You joyfully take up the cross as an opportunity to love another person in the midst in the midst of their imperfection. That means we have to be content in the good sense with regard to where we are at in life. Not again embracing the suck, but choosing peace, joy. Joy is not a fleeting emotion of happiness that comes and goes, it is transitory. Joy is a grace-filled life. It is supernatural happiness that brings in all the other virtues, peace, joy, harmony, gratitude. St. John Chrysostom says, we will take great care to choose a wife who is well-ordered from the beginning and compatible with our character. So what is he saying? Take the time to discern and figure out whether or not this is the right wife who is, he says, well-ordered from the beginning and compatible. So he says, you know, if that's not what you chose, you need to embrace where you're at and work on, as St. Paul calls and gives the example of Jesus Christ and sanctifying your spouse, no matter what. But be choosy in who you choose to marry in the right sense, focusing on holiness. It's important that you know yourself and you know who you're dating, who you're discerning marriage with, because dating is for the purpose of discerning marriage. So the question is, who will you die for? And who will you die for joyfully? Ladies, find a man who's willing to do this for you, because marriage is challenging enough. I think it's the opportunity to our greatest downfall, but it's also the opportunity. It is a vocation that can lead us to to heaven. And that's why you should marry. But if you shouldn't, as the apostles and even St. Paul Warren, maybe it's something to reconsider if you're not willing to live what the church is calling us to in sacrificial love to the point of death. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Be sure to head over to relevantradio.com forward slash trending. Listen to the podcast and share this one with someone you know who's considering marriage or getting ready to get married.